You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Hey, welcome everyone to Tribe Tel Aviv and the Sunset Series. And we're very, uh, we appreciate Adele Raymer that you've come to join us here tonight to give us a survivor's story from the Gaza border on October 7th. And let me tell you a little bit about Adele. She is an American who's uh, born Israeli, who lives in Kibbutz Nirim, one mile from the border of the Gaza Strip, since 1975. She came and uh, did her army service in that area. She fell in love with the community and never left. And over the years, the community has been under attack, particularly in 2014, with the hundreds of rockets exploding near her bedroom. And... um, through all of that, she uh, moderates a Facebook group called Life on the Border with Gaza. She's a blogger and a spokesperson. She has traveled throughout the world uh, and has spoken before the UN Security Council. Uh, she's represented the Israel Foreign Ministry, Jewish National Fund. And October 7th, she participated, after October 7th, she's participated in two delegations sent abroad with lawmakers in Washington, D.C., Berlin, Germany, and she's been interviewed on CNN, Fox News, Wall Street Journal, and CBS. And Adele has told us that she is a proud Zionist, and she believes that people on both sides of the border deserve better security and quality of life. So thank you for joining us, Adele, and I turn it over to you. Thank you for having me. Um, So... Yes, that's about me in a nutshell. Now I can go, right? No, no. Well, we, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's yeah. uh, obviously everyone's been shaken by the events of October 7th traumatically. But uh, speaking for myself, I can't even imagine what it would be like to have been there. So that's really, we're turning to you. We want to hear from you. We want to hear from you also the the larger picture of what it's like to be in a community down there, how it's evolved over the years. And of course, I'm sure you have thoughts about the future and, you know. Right. So I, I can't imagine how it was either. It, you know, I look back at October the 7th and seems just like a bad dream, like the worst nightmare in my worst nightmares. In fact, I would never have imagined that what happened on October 7th would be able to happen. Um, As Jonathan explained, I've lived in the area since 1975. And when I moved there, it was not a war zone. It was calm and peaceful. And we used to get in a car and drive into Gaza and go to the beach, go to the shuk, buy stuff in the open air market there. And Gazans used to come in and, and and work freely in Israel, more or less. You know, they had to go through security. It was an international border and, and they weren't citizens uh, of Israel. But uh, there was interchange. People, Gazans met Israelis and Israelis met Gazans. And that is not something that has happened for the most part since 2005. Um, and that's a situation which which is what I understand now has led 
to where we are today. Um, until October 7th, I would often host people on my kibbutz and take them around and, and tell them what life was like and and tell people that I truly, truly believed that most of the people that live on the other side of the border just want the same thing that I do, put food on their table, have safety for their children. I don't know that I believe that anymore. And, and that is in light of the, the fact that for the past 20 years, ever since we left Gaza and the Hamas has gotten into power, the educational system there has been teaching their children to hate. So we have an entire generation that has grown up thinking that we are the devil, thinking that we are the ones that are that, that are here to kill them, that that we all we want to do is kill them. Um <laughs> Sorry, um, and and that's been a that's been a switch for me. I, I keep saying October seventh, something in my DNA switched. So October sixth was a, a big party on Kibbutz Nirim, where one of the uh, the eleven points of the Negev, a very historical event that happened in 1946 when David Ben Gurion wanted to have. Jewish presence in the Negev desert so that when the state would be founded, um, there would already be a Jewish presence in the Negev. And my kibbutz was one of those communities that went out uh, to, to, to put their stakes in the Negev. Um, so on October 6th, we celebrated 77 years to our kibbutz's anniversary. My daughter, who is in charge of the um, culture, cultural aspects of kibbutz Nirim, was in charge of the party. She's separated from her husband. My daughter and her husband and their family live on kibbutz Nirim. I have other kids that do not live uh, in the Negev, but they all live in Israel. And so my grandchildren were with my son-in-law and she was in charge of the party. And another son of mine was visiting. He lives in Tel Aviv and he came down for the festivities. Plus October 8th was his birthday and he was just about to go abroad to a, a big trip in Australia and New Zealand. So he came down for the weekend to be with me and to help us celebrate. And October 6th, before I went to bed, um, I told him, if you don't see me in the morning, it's because I want to take my camera. I'm an amateur photographer. I want to take my camera and go take a, a, a picture of a field at sunrise of, of a field of wildflowers. And, and that was my plan for October 7th at quarter to six in the morning. Thanks, God. I was too tired to actually do that because if I had actually gone out to take pictures in that field, I would not be here talking to you tonight. At 6.30 in the morning, we started getting 
incoming rocket warnings. And where I live, which is on Kibbutz Nirim, uh, two kilometers, just under two kilometers from the border, we have between zero to 10 seconds from the second we hear that incoming rocket alert until the second we hear that explosion, zero to 10. And every house within seven kilometers of the border has a safe room, a concrete reinforced safe room. Is everybody here on the talk Israeli? Do I need to explain what a safe room is? I don't, I don't think so. I think that everyone knows what that is. Okay. So, um, so I ran to the safe room and, and, and the barrage was so intense that I didn't even have time. I didn't dare stand up and close the, the iron window sleeve because I, I was scared that something would explode nearby and, and shrapnel would, would be able to enter the room through the window. Um, so my son and I just closed the door, sat on the floor and waited, waited for it to calm down. After about 15 minutes, we were sent a message on our kibbutz internal messaging system that, that the sovereign border of Israel had, had been, um, had been infiltrated by terrorists. And that we should go outside the safe room to close the doors, close the windows, lock everything, and to go back into the safe room and lock ourselves in the safe room, which you cannot do. The safe room doors do not lock. I don't know how everybody else's safe room doors are, but on where I live, the only way it's actually locked, if you're pulling down on the handle, which is keeping the pit, the iron metal pins in the ceiling and the floor. And because these are safe rooms that are built against rockets and not against infiltration. So I went outside and closed everything up, although my house really doesn't close very thoroughly. And if anybody wanted to break in one rock through the window, they're in. And it it was funny, a a few weeks ago, I'd forgotten about this, but from the very beginning, when it started, I started doing Facebook Lives on the group that Jonathan mentioned, Life on the Border with Gaza. And I went back and looked it up. And I'm, I'm recording myself as I'm going around locking the doors and, I'm, and the windows. I'm thinking, this isn't really necessary because there's no way that they're going to get all the way into Nirim because it's two kilometers and there's army all over the place. But I'm doing it anyway. Um, at about 7.15, 7.30, we got notification that the kibbutz had been infiltrated with terrorists. And we're watching the internal messaging system. And, and all of a sudden, I see messages from people saying, we can hear Arabic outside and we hear gunshots. And uh, on our kibbutz, you hear rocket explosions when, you know, when, when a rocket is shot off, I know what that sounds like. I know what tanks shooting outside, uh, outside sounds like. I've never heard automatic machine gun fire around me. I've never heard, um, grenades and RPGs exploding around me. And we heard that. We heard that on October 7th in the morning. We also heard 
shouting in Arabic. And it was just inconceivable that in your wildest dreams, I, I, I've been documenting people's stories, people on Nirim, and, and I've asked the, the first responders if they've ever prepared for a scenario like this. And they said the scenarios we prepared for is for a single terrorist, a small group of terrorists, not for tens of terrorists to be infiltrating at the same time. There were 50, 60 terrorists. It's, it's, I don't know if anybody knows exactly how many, but tens of terrorists infiltrated all throughout the community at once. And, and so first responders, we had four of them that were active outside. Um, the rest of them were off the kibbutz. It was a holiday. Many people were away. Um, we had, uh, my son-in-law is a first responder, but he had my three grandchildren in the house with him because they were with him and not with my daughter. So he couldn't go out. Um, I have my three grandchildren are aged two, six, and eight. So he couldn't leave them alone and go out and, and joy, join the other first responders. So there were four people out there actively trying to repel tens of terrorists. It was a totally impossible situation. And, and as the day, the morning goes, you see people writing on the internal WhatsApp group saying the army will get here soon. Um, where, where are the, where are our first responders? And, and we can hear Arabic and shooting and, and they're coming into our house and, and I'm following the progression of the terrorists through the kibbutz virtually through this WhatsApp system. And we know we're a small community. We're 450 people altogether, including children, including everybody, everybody. I know where everybody lives. So I'm following the progression live of the terrorists as they're getting nearer and nearer and going into more and more houses. And, and we're just sitting there, my son and I looking at each other and, and all of a sudden we start hearing Arabic outside also. And, and I looked at my son and he looked at me and we, we told each other that we loved each other and basically prepared to say goodbye. At about 10 o'clock, my son heard, he understands a little bit Arabic, and he heard, he, he said he heard them saying in Arabic, come here. We didn't understand what that was, but we just waited. We, we were not allowed to go out of the, the safe room. We didn't have water there, no toilet. By 10.30, I was in physical pain and I had to go to the bathroom. I wait, we waited, I waited for it to be relatively quiet outside when I didn't hear, you know, gunshots nearby and I didn't hear the, the Arabic voices anymore. And I stepped out of my safe room to go to the bathroom. And that's when I saw that the slats on the window opposite me had been broken. So the terrorists started breaking into my house and got called away, whether it was divine intervention or dumb luck or my late husband watching over us. I, I, I don't know, but 
we were we were passed over um at the same time and i didn't know this at the time uh, i only found out the next day at the same time my son-in-law's house was being broken into by terrorists he told his my three grandchildren hide under the covers you're going to hear a loud noise don't come after me I will be right back. Just stay here and be quiet. Those kids never listened. But they listened. He stepped outside of his safe room and shot a terrorist right at the entrance to his safe room. He tried going after another two that he saw running away. But when he got to the threshold, he realized that there were numerous armed terrorists outside and he didn't stand the chance so he cut his losses and went back to to the safe room to protect my grandchildren he said he after that he didn't hold the handle down he kneeled in front of the door pointed his gun at the door and he said anybody who walked through that door was going to get a bullet and it was like that for hours we waited for hours the army did not show up until 1.30. Our community was on its own for seven hours with terrorists rampaging through the kibbutz, going into homes, burning homes, burning cars, smashing everything they could destroy and killing people and capturing and taking hostages. Again, I didn't know all of what was going on. I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of what was going on elsewhere in the country because pretty early on, when an escalation happens, I always have the TV on in my safe room so that I can keep track of what's going on. But we heard the voices outside, so we had to be as quiet as possible. We turned off the air conditioner, turned off the sound to the TV. But after a while, it was just, information overload and and I was in survival mode I turned off the tv completely didn't want to know anything else about what was going on outside we were just focusing on getting through and and it it was so tense that at one point I thought just let them come in already whatever's going to happen just let it happen already because hours and hours of that tension about of not knowing what's going on, not being able to leave the safe room, just waiting for your turn was just overwhelming already. At 1.30, the army arrived, and we knew that they arrived at the kibbutz, but it took them hours to get to all of the houses. First of all, they went to the houses that were in most dire danger. In one of the houses, there was a family, a a young couple with an eight-day-old baby, and their house was burning. They were in the safe room with the baby. The terrorists had tried to open the safe room door and didn't manage to open it, but dislodged it enough for for smoke to be able to pour through, through, um, through a gap in the bottom. And their safe room was filling up with smoke. 
They opened the, the window a little bit so they could get some air and they kept putting the baby up to the window every few minutes so he could get some fresh air and then putting him down on the floor because smoke rises and, and to try and keep him as safe as possible. So they went first to to that area. Um, they worked their way through the community, clearing out areas being sure that there were no terrorists around, uh, nearby and escorting families house by house to a community center in the center of the kibbutz so that they would be able to have soldiers that were protecting us from around they got to my house at about 5 15 5 30 so my son and i were in the safe room in Deathly fear for 11 hours until we finally were taken out. When we were taken out, again, all this time, there's incoming rockets and and you hear gunfire nearby. It, it was an active war zone and we had to walk through the kibbutz to get to the, to the community center. And I couldn't understand why they were walking us the long way round. And, and in the middle of escaping, there was an incoming alert. So we just threw ourselves on the ground and covered our heads and waited to hear the explosion and then continue. Afterwards, I asked why we went the way we did. And they explained to me that the short way, the regular way, the direct way was full of bodies that they wanted to prevent us from seeing at least that. The entire kibbutz stayed in the community center. We finally, everybody was brought there by 9.30 at night. And again, they didn't know if they'd gotten all of the terrorists. They knew how many they'd killed. They didn't know how many were hiding under a bush in an, in an attic. And it, you don't know. You don't know if you've gotten them all. Um I'll, I'll cut it short. There was there, there were many more hours of tension and and fear and heart wrenching news that, for me at any rate, trickled in very slowly. I was with my grandchildren by this time in the community center, and where the children were, people weren't talking about what happened. So it took me a while to find out about the people from my community that were murdered friends of mine that were murdered, friends of mine that were abducted, people from our community that were abducted. It took a long time for the picture to, to become clear. And we spent the time in the community center, helping each other, bringing food, seeing to each other's needs as, as best we could. And again, in, in an active war zone. The next day at two o'clock, Sorry, at one o'clock, we were finally told that they believe they'd gotten all of the terrorists within the kibbutz. We were sent to our homes to quickly pack a bag and be ready to be um, evacuated to Eilat, to wait in the safe room um, until we were called and given the, the message to to leave our rooms and, and to go out to buses that would be in four different areas in the kibbutz. 
at two o'clock, we got the call. We went out to the buses. It took a long time to get everything together. It was very poorly planned. It was very last, there was no time to plan anything and nobody really had information. I was sitting in the bus for 40 minutes, which in itself was petrifying because if there had been a red alert, if there'd been incoming rockets in zero to 10 seconds, there's no way you can evacuate a bus and get to someplace safe. That that passed quietly. We left the kibbutz around three, driving through an active war zone. The entire area was still full of terrorists. There were burning cars at the side of the road, charred bodies on the ground, and we're just driving. We finally got to where I am now, in a lot, in a hotel. The entire community was evacuated together because... Research shows that a community that is evacuated together um, is more resilient and it's easier for for us to heal if we are together. But we're going through a very difficult time now because it's very hard to live in a hotel. It's, It's noisy and it's cramped. And for families with children, it's just totally impossible. People are starting to leave and find other options And there's a feeling that our community is just falling apart. And and although I know that people are working very hard to keep it together, it's it's a long time. It's a long time to live in a hotel. And and we have plans of moving to to Beersheba, again, as a community, but there aren't enough houses in the same area to house all of us. So we're going to be split up. And that's another option for 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 the, the danger that we're not going to remain together as a community. So as, as a kibbutz member of almost 50 years, I'm I'm living in, in a community that's in mourning. I'm living in a community that's highly traumatized. And I'm living in a community that 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 might be dying. I hope it's not, but the future is just so uncertain. As as optimistic as I am, as as a person, I don't plan more than one or two days ahead. I don't know where I'm going to be in a week's time. I don't know where I'm going to be in a month's time. Nobody knows. It's like our whole life paused October 7th and and we're still there. We're still stuck. Um, so that's more or less where I am today. Uh, I'm, I spend my day trying to do my days, trying to do meaningful things because I don't do victim well. So I've been documenting the stories of people on my kibbutz. I've been doing personal photography projects. I've gone abroad twice on missions to talk to lawmakers. There might be another one coming up. Um, and and I give interviews. And, and I haven't said no to one because it's important to me to tell our story. And... As much as I've always been a person 
who said that this is not a conflict that, that can be solved with weapons. It has to be solved with diplomacy. Unfortunately, on October 7th, something in my DNA changed. And I realized that before we make peace, before we can ever think of making peace, unfortunately, we have to make war. And when I hear the Hamas Palestinians saying, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, that is a genocidal war cry. And I take them at their word. And and we said never again after the Holocaust. And we really meant it. Thank you, Adele. Do you, would you like to share something more or would you like me to use this uh, moment to open up to questions? Um, if, if people have questions, we can take from there and I can backtrack if I, oh, I do want to mention one thing. Um, mm-hmm. I have a very dear friend of mine, Judy Weinstein Hagi. She's 70 years old. On October 7th, she went on a sunrise walk they weren't too too tired or lazy in the morning to do that, she and her husband. And they went, they're from Niroz, and they went out walking in the fields. And they're hostage. I know that they were both shot. Her husband, I doubt that he survived. She was shot in the arm. But they're both listed as hostages, and we have no idea where they are and there she's an American Canadian Israeli citizen and I can't believe that the American government and and that, that the foreign governments haven't been doing more to get their dual nationals seen to at least among the hostages and she's still there she's the only senior citizen that's still a hostage and I'm 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 just hoping for the best because the alternative is not conceivable. Thank you so much for your emotional testimony. Um, we all feel it so deeply. I'm going to open to questions. I'm going to begin with our first question from our director. How is it? that Hamas was elected in 2006, yet their charter called for the slaughter of Jews. How do you believe that that that, that was a election that was a party that was voted in? You have to ask them. <laughs> this is not a question that I can can answer, but what I can tell you is that that's what I was talking about with with education. And I'm sure you've all seen the clips that the uh, of children in Gaza for their end of year play, dressing up as IDF soldiers and Gazan fighters, and they capture the IDF soldiers and and take them prisoner and kill them. And those are the monsters that were in my community and others on October seventh. They've learned their lessons really, really well. The Hamas. And thank you, UNRWA, 
have been teaching them very thoroughly. And uh, had were you involved? I mean, you said you, you used to go into Gaza. Are you personally in touch with any people from Gaza? Were you involved in helping bring people to the hospitals? Uh, the personal contact you had, did you see an evolution? Did people talk to you from Gaza, talk to you about it? Yeah, I was, I've been in touch with Gazans for, for a number of years. Gazans who believe that things could be different. Gazans who did educational activities that I worked with on educational activities to teach their children that, that we're not the enemy. We, we, in 2019, we had a bike marathon with children on the Gazan side and, and young people on our side riding bikes on the same day with wow. shirts that said freedom, peace. And the people who organized that on the other side were hunted down by the Hamas and were tortured, jailed and tortured. And I was, these people were my bright light. These people were my hope that things could be different in Gaza. And none of the people that I was personally in touch with at that time are still in Gaza anymore. They, they, escaped Gaza and they say that they're working trying to continue their work for out from outside but and I'm still in touch with them but but they're not in there and like I said unfortunately the the amount of people who I who I believed think believe the same things that we do believe that we can have coexistence are so much smaller than I had originally believed. I'm in touch with one woman who is still there. I was in touch with her. She wrote me on October 7th in the morning and asked how I was, and I asked how she was. And she lives just on the other side of the fence for me in Abasan. And I knew that. And at one point, our community... She was writing to me when I was in the safe room, hiding from 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 terrorists. And at one at one point, I started questioning the interaction, and it, it kind of freaked me out she, because she was asking questions like, "Where are you?" and "What's happening?" And just so I just I stepped back and I didn't answer her until I was no longer on the kibbutz. I do believe that that she. Is one of the innocents, is among the innocents. Um, but you just, when you experience something like we experienced, you start, you start questioning more. Absolutely. What an unnerving experience and an experience in which you have to question your loyalties and your friends. And if your friends are really your friends, we have a question from Gabriel Katz. He says, thank you for your testimony. Gabriel Katz from Uruguay here. What do you think we in the diaspora should reply to people who are denying what happened on October 7th, Am Israel Chai? What should we reply to them? Um, 
that they're detached from reality? Where, how is it normal? How is it expected any place in the world that over 1,200 people will be slaughtered on the same day and the monsters that are doing it are taking pictures with their with their GoPros, bragging about it, and 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 then it gets questioned. I, I don't know. Are they living under a rock? I I, I wouldn't know how to answer that. <laughs> it, it it makes no, there's proof. What what more? What stronger proof can you have? Than, than what the, the monsters themselves gave to the world. Absolutely. Uh, I think it's very difficult outside to deal with questions like this. And I myself as a journalist, I'm getting questions like this all the time and it's infuriating. Um, so I'm going to move into an, a question from Roni. He says, will you go back to Im? when the current war is all over and under which conditions do you still believe in future peace with Palestinians? I think, I think that I I would like to believe in future peace with Palestinians, but in order for that to happen, the Hamas have to be, totally destroyed their weapons capability needs to be totally disarmed re-education has to be done there and I certainly want to go back to my home it's the only home I've known since for all of my adult life my children were born there my parents and my husband are buried there it's I have no doubt that I'll go back there um but in order for me to be able to go back my sense of security will have to be assured and I I have to be able to get back the sense of security the sense of resilience that I had on October 6th, before I went to bed, when I told my son that I would be going out in the car on my own to take pictures of wildflowers before sunrise. And I'm going to have to have a sense of security that's more than than the fog of what now I realize really was. It was a mirage. I had a sense of security, but I didn't really have security. It's going to be much harder to convince me after going through something like that, that the sense of security is true security. I don't know how that's going to be done. And that's not my job. That's the government's job. That's the IDF's job. Um, But that's what's going to have to happen for me to be able to go back. And as I'm going back there on Wednesday for a visit. I'll go back there and live as soon as as soon as it's truly truly safe to do so. 
and we hope that it'll be safe for you to return to your home as soon as possible and for everybody and for your entire community to be able to return. Um, we have a question from Jordan. He says, do you believe that the dual objectives of returning hostages and dismantling Hamas are at odds with one another? If so, which objective should Israel prioritize? Um, so you know, I'm just a, an English teacher, a retired one at that, and I am so glad that I do not have to make that decision because that it, that's a really tough decision. Um, I think I I think the the clock is ticking much faster for the hostages than it is for getting rid of the Hamas. And I personally would say that that should be our first priority. First of all, to get the hostages safely out of there. Um, the government owes it to us. We, we were, we were let down. We were abandoned. We were failed. There were so many fails that day. And all of the people that are hostages there need to get out. They need to be back home with their families. And every day that goes by is dangerous. My friend Judy, as I said, she was shot. She was shot in the arm. Is she being taken care of? Is she's If she's alive, even... It, 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 are her physical needs being taken care of? And and if at any rate, the longer she stays there, the more dangerous it is for all of them. So, as a person who turns when she turns on the TV and sees the stories about the families of the abducted, of the the slaughtered, of the the families that are talking, I know so many people there. I turn on the TV. There's not one time I'll turn on the TV and not see people that I know that are directly impacted. I taught at our high school for almost 40 years. It's a small region. Everybody's gone through there. So the Hamas need to be dealt with. But first, I do believe that we need to, to, to get our hostages back. Because while dealing with the, if we deal with the Hamas first, then the hostages are in danger. But as I said, I'm not, I'm not an authority. I can only talk as Adele, the, the longtime resident who's lost far too many people, far too many friends, either temporarily or permanently by the events of October 7th. Thank you for answering that. And we, and, and that must be very difficult for you that every time you turn on TV, you see your former students, you see people that you um, are, were your neighbors. Uh, and it's, it's a daily reminder and a daily trial for you. And thank you for sharing that because I think that's also an element that people who are not directly impacted um, aren't experiencing. They're not experiencing that kind of daily trauma we have a question from AJ Harris. 
he wants to know, um, well, well, you covered this a bit, but he said, will we try to rebuild the community if you return? And a question from Nomadigo Ventures, which is, uh, do you think that we have a partner for peace with the PLO? And if the PLO is, is our best option, why do they incite against us and deny our right to exist in the region? I think we have a partner for peace in the people that I was working opposite. In people like Rami Aman, who founded the Gaza Youth Committee, and, and other people like him. The, the PLO, the PLO have, uh, uh, Abu Mazen has not said anything about the, has not um, condemned the, the massacre of October 7th. There's still the pay for slay program. I don't see him as a partner, but there are other Gazans. And and this is the time, I think, for the world to step up and start getting more involved in what's going on there. We can't solve their problems for them. We can't tell them what to do and who to elect. But there are moderate Arab states that are supporting, that, that could be supporting the Palestinians and getting them involved and and getting them to do things differently in a way that there could be peace partners. And like I said, re-educating. Something else that a lot of people don't think about. Um, you, you have to keep in mind that these hostages that are being released like everybody's so excited and happy when 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 they see them coming coming back and saying you know welcome home but most of these hostages are not actually going home most of these hostages are from my area and can't go home either don't have homes to go home to because they've been physically destroyed or 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 can't go home like I can't go home because it's a war zone and it's still too dangerous. So that's something that I want you to keep in mind when we think of hostages returning home. Thank you for bringing us that perspective. Certainly, if I were, God forbid, a hostage, I would want to be returned to my house and to be able to go to my home and get into my own bed. And uh, I think that's something people, again, aren't aren't considering, aren't thinking about. And it might seem small, but being able to return to your house instead of return to a hotel room or return to some room that's been government assigned um, is certainly a, a whole new trauma to experience after such a after such hard times in captivity. I want to. I think this is our final question. We have a question from Kay Weinstein. She wants to know, have there been any particular moments or interactions following October 7th that have particularly touched you or given you hope for your, for you and for the future of your community? And I think that's a nice way for us to finish on hopefully a positive note. So when we, as soon as we came to lot, we got the biggest hug from the hotel who are truly going out of their way. They've changed all their plans. They've, they've opened their, all of their facilities. They feed us. They take care of us. Everything we need 
is is seen to here by the hotel. The, I'm at the King Solomon Hotel, but also all of the hotels in in around the country that have that have accepted in that have taken in um, people who are refugees in their own home, in their own country, and individual families as well have have taken in people with. The country has come together, and it, it was a very difficult time leading up to this. The whole political situation, the whole political atmosphere, which I'm not going to get into now, um, but I, I am sure it had a lot to do with October 7th being able to happen. It It switched people's focuses and and brought the country together and and when i was abroad i was taken to capitol hill and to congress people and senators and in berlin and the bundestag and we told our stories just like we I, i'm doing now and i felt such support and people were sitting with me in the room in tears and they they just wanted to hug and to try and make things better and 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 I really appreciate the support we're getting from from everybody around so to take us back to the question with how do you re- relate to people that that question it happening it's just this is reality people who who are, who are giving us the hugs these are people who are connected to reality and understand and and have just have so much empathy for us that that's healing the support that we get from everybody around and from everybody abroad gives us strength thank you so much for leaving us with that beautiful message uh, we appreciate you sharing your story with us today. I am certain that every time you recount it, it is a a difficult moment, and you know you're bringing these images back to yourself. Everyone in the group is so grateful that you shared, and that we have you as part of our our people going out and doing this hard work of sharing your story, of talking with Congress and of um, really having lived at the border all of this time as sort of the, fr- the front line. You know, there's a reason that Hamas was not able to make its way to Tel Aviv, and it's because there were communities that they had to pass through all throughout the South. And that is a huge sacrifice that um, so many people have, have ex- experienced. So thank you for spending all of your years speaking about this issue and living there and being at the border and continuing to do the amazing work. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. So everyone, please 